Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 8? We start a new chapter today in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. We're learning how it is to be the church, not just talk about the church, not just think about the church, but we have a responsibility to be the church because we are the church. It's not a building, not a location, but we are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. And the title of our message today is God will do what it takes to stir you up. God will do what it takes to stir you up. And the reason why is because we have a tendency to settle down into times of comfort and ease. It's a very natural response to living life. And I'm sure you've noticed just how easy it is to settle down, to be in a place of comfort and ease, or we might even describe that as coasting along, or another way that that's described is phoning it in. You're not really making major progress, taking steps of faith, but you're also not going backwards at the same time. You're just coasting along, and you like it. But let me say to you today that coasting along as a believer in Jesus is not a good place to be. It's God's desire that you are continually moving and growing, going from glory to glory and strength to strength. Peter would put it this way in 2 Peter, you can just jot it down, in chapter 3 and verse 17, he said this, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. It is God's will for you and I to grow in his grace and his knowledge. It's God's will for you and I not to fall from our steadfastness. And the early church here, by the time we get to chapter 8 in the book of Acts, is in a relatively good place. And the reason why they're in a relatively good place is because of their steadfastness. You remember back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we learn one of the secrets of their strength. And the Bible says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in fellowship, and in the breaking of bread. They were a steadfast community of Jesus followers who continued on going forward And they come to a place in chapter 8 where now God is going to stir them up. Why? Because they need to be stirred up. Up until this point, they've been very faithful in Jerusalem. They've been very faithful in ministering the gospel in their home base, in their city. But again, hold your places in chapter 8. Turn back to chapter 1. It wasn't God's will for them to be faithful only in Jerusalem. There was a much broader calling upon their lives. Even today, there's a much broader calling on your life. But remember, before Pentecost, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, his final words to the believers are found here in verse 8 of chapter 1, speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember what he said, but you shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so far, some commentators believe it's been about a year now from the beginning of the church to chapter eight. So far, the church has been very faithful in Jerusalem. You could say that the early church is not really in disobedience by the time we get to chapter seven and eight, but they're also not really moving out to obey Acts chapter one, verse eight either. They're just coasting along. They're comfortable and content, but in a dangerous way. Instead of reaching out, they've sort of huddled together, kind of like a little holy Christian church huddle. I'm gonna hang out with my Christian friends, do my Christian thing, and we'll just let the world go and be the world. But that's not God's will for your life. The call of God in your life then, for the believers then and for us now, is to infiltrate this culture, not to isolate ourselves. And I mean, and especially in a season of where our world is just going south very rapidly, just like God predicted would happen in the last days, there is this temptation for the church just to pull away, run away, isolate, and let the world be the world. You know, it wouldn't be unusual to go, you know what, the world's going so far away from God and so anti-Christ, we should just get together with a group of believers and go to the Rocky Mountains and live in a cave together. Uh, You know what, you're not going to like that very much because believers have issues too and you're not going to be able to hide away from the way that sin has affected you and me. And by the way, it's not God's will for you to run away to the mountains and leave the lost to be lost. He wants you to infiltrate You are in this world, but you're not of this world, the Bible says. And you are the very messengers of the gospel, the heart of our church. Win, disciple, and send. And every moment of every day, you are sent into a very challenging culture that needs to see the salt and the light, needs to experience what a real believer looks like and sounds like. It, it is the great commission. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples. And if we choose just to hang around in a holy huddle, then we're going to miss out what God has for our lives. I mean, I think of this of our church. You know, it wasn't many years ago that our church was just 30 people or so. That's how things started. I mean, we go 30, 40. I teach a great message. We go back down to 10. You know, that's how it was in the early days. And and there was a sense, though, in those early days of this smaller group. And, you know, we're just thinking, oh, it can't get better than this. And we're enjoying fellowship with one another and all that God wants to do. But occasionally there were those who would say, I love this so much. I don't want the church to grow. And you're like, what? You don't want the church to grow. That position alone is antithesis. It is the exact opposite of the love of God. The love of God is that the church grows, that men and women, they come out of the darkness and they come into the light, that their sins are forgiven. It is God's will that the church grows, not to stay in these little holy, and you know, as the church has grown, it's not just one little holy huddle now, it's many And you have to guard yourself against just hanging out with other Christians, talking Christian things, and just having your own little holy huddles and not caring for the lost, even praying for the lost. 
stepping into lives of people that are outside of your regular group of friends. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's where the early church is, I think, in some ways. They're enjoying the ministry and the faithfulness of God in Jerusalem. And they're not necessarily in any kind of sin, but they're in a very dangerous place. They're they're not going backwards, like they're not in some state of rank disobedience. They're not in a place of being prodigals, but they're also not pressing in and stepping out. And they're just, I guess you could say they're stagnant in some ways, complacent. And let me just say, I'm certain those words describe some of you today, either here listening to me downstairs on the radio, online, that you're just stagnant and complacent. And you're content with where you are, but not in a good way. And God is reminding us today that he'll do whatever it takes to stir you up in love and good works. For some of you, it can just be a simple command that God wants to stir up and say, okay, stir me up, Lord. But others, it'll be circumstances. For the early church, it was great persecution. Notice with me in verse one of chapter eight. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Again, there are no chapter breaks, no verses in the original Greek text, so this is going to read straight through. The religious rulers just stoned and murdered Stephen, the first martyr. Jesus is standing to receive the first martyr in heaven, and here they are, Saul, watching it all, says that he consented or he agreed or he had a vote in the matter, which many believe this is a proof that Paul, as a young man, was a part of the Sanhedrin, part of the religious rulers. We learned last time that they laid all the coats down before him and Saul's approving of it all and this greatly affects him. It greatly affects him. Saul is having to deal with the reality of everything that he heard, everything he knows in the scriptures, everything that he's watching, the final words of Stephen, it's all happening to him. And what happens, the early church's experience up to this point, great grace. They've experienced up to this point, great power. They've experienced up to this point, great pretense, Ananias and Sapphira. And now they're experiencing great and widespread persecution. And Satan, the devil, our enemy himself, may try to use persecution to intimidate and scare us, but God always uses it to spread the gospel. It's always a clarion call. Whenever pressure comes upon the church, whenever difficulties come in, you know that God is going to use those difficulties for the purposes of spreading the gospel. And it doesn't shut the gospel down as much as you would think the devil would learn that by now. It doesn't stop the gospel. I mean, you look at the history of the church today, you and I are a part of the church because the church has withstood every single persecution it's ever faced. I mean, I look at it in the context of our own country and our own times in the last few years, and there's been great pressure upon the church and great things to come against the church. And man, listening to some pastor these days, they make it sound like Jesus is a wimp. Oh, we've got to fight and stand up and we got to go and like Jesus can't do it without us. He's just fine without you, believe me. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the one building his church. 
And as you watch persecution, I, I want you to be careful as you're reading the book of Acts or persecution all throughout church history. God has always used persecution and pressure to spread the gospel. It has never stopped the church. It only emboldens the church to press on, to move forward with a singular purpose of the gospel. That's the key. You want to be careful not to adopt other things and other methodologies that would dilute the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that your sins can be forgiven. That it puts you on the other end of the God that loves you. That you can escape the judgment and the wrath of God. Why? Because he loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on your behalf. And that if you will repent of your sins today, oh, oh, by the way, the very beginning of the gospel actually starts like this. You are a sinner separated from God. That is the condition of your life apart from God. Or you could say it this way. The Bible puts it this way. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that you need to understand the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is more powerful than any other mechanism of change on the earth today. And Jesus is still saving souls. If the church ever gets sidetracked on something other than the gospel, if the church ever tries to mix the gospel with something else, it dilutes its power, and then the church becomes a laughingstock. Because the only power of change, Paul would even put it this way, in Rome, to the Romans, he would tell them, the Romans, a city, Rome was just a city of great debauchery and sin and antichrist behavior. And what did Paul write to them? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentile. That is God's heart. And that's what the early church is gonna learn. They don't put up a fight, they just go with the flow of the Spirit. They don't defend themselves, they just continue to do what God's calling them to do, even if it means death, dying as Stephen did. So the devil tries to use persecution to smother God's work, to dilute God's work, to distract God's workers, but God will use it to build you up. You can jot it down again in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, you are of God, little children, and overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isn't that good? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so God is going to use the same persecution to spread the gospel, to build your faith, and to encourage you. I think of the church in China. Before the Cultural Revolution in China in the 1940s, some estimate there were about 800,000 believers in China and roughly 600 missionaries. And then in the 1940s, everything changed. Uh, the government completely changed. They come down hard on Christians. They expel all the missionaries, and the church has to go underground. And of course, we go, oh no, not underground. The underground church today has grown to hundreds of millions of believers. And you know what? There are people, and this is something that might be humbling to you, but there are people in China right now praying about coming to the U.S. to evangelize you. 
I'm praying for our church. They look at the church in the West and they go, what is wrong with them? Where have they gone? What have they done? And there are people, you know, the underground church in India, the underground church in North Korea, the church in South Korea, the church underground church in China, they are praying for us in many ways, sending missionaries to the states in order to evangelize the United States because they see such a great need among us. That's why even though persecution is horrible, it's inevitable. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation, but respond with good cheer because he's overcome the world. And even though it comes, it never hurts the church in the long run. God is always working among us. Uh, Persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it only to produce a greater harvest. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, in there in verse one, I want you to circle the phrase, great persecution, great persecution. And at the end, in verse one, toward the end, it says scattered. Circle the word scattered. And then you can write a little arrow between the two because great persecution leads to a scattering, a moving. God uses disruptions in our lives to move us from one place to another. Again, I think of the last few years of very hard, very challenging, lots of decisions, lots of division, and then you sort of get out of the last couple years and everybody's going, I just wanted to go back to normal. I just wanted to go back to normal. It will never go back to normal. God doesn't want you to live in normal. He's taking you in a new direction. There's a, a new forward. He's taking us forward, not backward. And he's taking us forward for the gospel. That's God's heart for you. Even some of you might be clinging. I wish it would go back to the way it was. It will never go back to the way it was. God is doing a new thing among us. Using the steady, steadfastness of his word that never changes, but God is moving us forward. And he wants us to participate. He'll use whatever it is to stir you up. He won't let you settle. And I want you to think of the persecution just here with Stephen in chapter seven. The religious rulers, like they felt, I believe, with Jesus, they have just taken out one strong voice, this man, Stephen. They've wiped out Stephen and silenced one voice. But little did they realize that murdering Stephen, they were awakening many more voices to take his place. So many replaced the one. And Saul here, he's consenting to it all. Saul doesn't know how his life's going to go. You got to remember that. We have the advantage. We know how it's going to go down. We know there's a chapter nine. We know Saul becomes Paul. We have that knowledge, but Saul doesn't know what's going on in his life, and the church doesn't know either. They don't know that this guy that's coming after them, wreaking havoc in their lives, is going to get saved and write most of the New Testament. They, Saul doesn't know that as this group is going from Judea, Samaria, in this persecution, that it will be him a few years later that is used to start the worldwide mission with a guy by the name of Barnabas. He doesn't know any of that yet. He, he is living with this anger and frustration against the church, single-handedly wanting to take it out. Notice in verse two, it says, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and they made great lamentation over him. So it's a very sad time, very challenging, very difficult. And in this sad, challenging, difficult time, verse three, as for Saul, he made havoc 
of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Again, if you like to write in your Bibles in verse three, circle the word havoc. It means injurious, you know, to injure someone. It also means ravaging someone. It speaks to us of like a wild, brutal animal. That's how Saul's acting right now. He's acting like an animal, killing, imprisoning, intimidating. I mean, he's very mean here, dragging out women, innocent men and women who have done nothing wrong, but have gone against his religious ideology. He's single-handedly wiping people out, throwing them in prison after they've, I mean, this church has been through great persecution from the very beginning. In order to step into following Messiah, you'll recall, we learned this all throughout our study in Hebrews, they had to leave everything and everyone. They, they needed to make a higher decision of love toward Christ, no matter the cost. It's a cost that not all of us, although some of us have paid parts of this, family has turned on us, upset with us, won't involve us. I mean, I get that. Some of us have experienced on a smaller scale the great pain of people turning against you because of your faith. But here's a group of people, the, the very foundation is they lost it all. Then they come together and it's no, it, it's no surprise that they would want to hang out with one another and encourage one another and share what little they have with each other. And some of them sold land and they gave all the proceeds because this is all they had. And I know that many of you in your church family, in your church life, whether you experience it now or in the near future, we have found that some relationships in the body of Christ can be closer than even our own blood relations because there's a spiritual connection that isn't always shared with those that are closest to us. That's them. They lost a very, Stephen was a stellar man. He, he was someone that, that was used greatly of God, a faithful man. He, he was, you could say, their spokesperson, not one of the apostles, but another generation. And the reward is they saw another one of the men that they loved, like Jesus, viciously murdered in this case, he was stoned to death, which is a horrible way to die. And Saul takes advantage of their weakness. It doesn't make sense. You would think when you're hurting, you'd get immediate comfort. But there are those that like to take advantage of your weakness, unfortunately. And so you're in a weakened state, and they're just like, man, the enemy's just pressing in harder and harder. Some of you might even have asked this question, when will it let up? Or as we read in the psalm today, Psalm 86, hey, I called out to the Lord in my trouble. Isn't it trouble that often calls, causes you to cry out to God? And you know, Saul here, he is, this bothered him, I believe, the rest of his life. This, this scenario, his attitude in this brief part of his life bothered him. We know because he mentions it many times later on in his writings. It's one of the reasons why I believe when Paul came to that place where he was writing to the Corinthians and he pleads with God three times to remove that thorn in his side, I believe part of that difficulty in his life was regret over his past. That he could just never shake how bad he was and how he treated people all in the name of God. Now for some of you, you came from a very difficult background like me, I got saved later in life lived a very rebellious life against God and those around me. And, and I can relate to that thought because there are many things that I regret. I don't dwell on them, but they just come back. 
And it becomes a real battle in my mind, a real spiritual battle of just having to deal with the realities of my past. Sometimes it may come out like this. You may look at your past and you go, you know what? If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have made. You ever think that way? That, that's the, but think about in a heaviness of like, oh, it's so much so Paul would give to us some of the most encouraging scriptures on how to deal with our past. How can we not think of Romans chapter eight, verse one? There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. I, I think of again where Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he said there is the, that, that you are now a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. You know, Paul, he dealt with this his whole life in 1 Corinthians. We're not going to, this could be a good Bible study in and of itself, but we won't develop it. I'll just give you the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, he mentions his unworthiness. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul looks back and he admits that he tried to destroy the church. When he wrote in Galatians chapter 5 of the works of the flesh, he didn't mention them all. But one of the ones that he mentioned was an outburst of wrath. We learn in Acts chapter 9 that he was an angry man. He would breathe in and out threats and murder. And here we see in verse 3, he creates havoc among innocent people. And then later, at, toward the end of his life when he's writing, and he's just so close to seeing the Lord himself, you know how he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Now, Paul saw some sinners in his life and experienced a lot of sin as he went with the gospel into various parts of the world. But as he's sitting down to encourage young Timothy, considering Timothy's ministry, having to consider his own, his conclusion is, I've seen a lot of sinners in my life, but I'm the worst. I'm the worst. And today, God would remind you, even as you assess your own life, that there is no condemnation for you. Perhaps like Paul, your past bothers you. But you need to move forward, trusting that God has a new, fresh work for you. You can't live in the past. Here, Saul of Tarsus is on the, he's, he's before, he's still living in rebellion against God, and he's both physically and emotionally hurtful to people with no shame. No shame. I, I don't want you to get in the picture. I don't want you to get the, in your mind you know, when it says the persecution's coming, Saul and others are coming against the church, and the church scatters and they leave Jerusalem. I don't want you to associate that with just moving to another city, like, like they have a U-Haul truck, and they're packing up everything in boxes, and honey, call the mover, because everything's ready, and we'll head off to a new house. You need to understand what we're dealing with here. First of all, this is a group of people that gave up everything to follow Christ, but still had to live in the same community. So they had nothing to start with. And now, you know, if it's just about a year later, they have about a year's of life, but they're living at the poverty level. They're, they're living in desperation. The only encouragement they have is with other believers. And then they have to leave back to reality. And whatever job they can, they can muster up, whatever little income they have, whatever little things they were able to, now persecution comes and they just leave everything. They run away. They're running away for their lives. They're not just moving to another state. They're not just moving on for a more comfortable life. They are living and leaving for their lives. And notice, when they did, it says in verse 4, therefore, those who were scattered 
went everywhere. What does your Bible say? They went everywhere preaching the word. And that's all that God would have from you, for you to be a witness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And they went preaching the word. What else do they have to give? They have no possessions. They have no status. They have nothing. So they come into a new area, Judea and Samaria, which is now another step down, unfortunately, in the prejudicial minds of the Jews of Jerusalem. And they've got nothing but the word. They have nothing but the word. It reminded me, you know, how during the last couple of years, we had a lot of people leave, move away from the church, move out of state, and it mostly was a political decision. Oh, I don't like all the politics of Colorado, so I'm going to move to another state, and that will be better there. Well, listen, God may use politics to move you, but I'll tell you this. When you get to that new state, preach the word. That's your purpose. It's not to find a more comfortable place for you or ideas that change. I mean, if you've been around for a while and you've seen political cycles come and go, you know that things change. Hey, things change all around us, but the word of God never changes. And so the church has to be on mission. You don't have a choice. I mean, in real way, you do have a choice, but here's the choice, obedience or disobedience. And so when you think of it that way, it's like you don't really have a choice to disobey. It's God's will for you when you're scattered. You know, maybe it's a job change. Maybe it is some kind of decision. I don't want to be here anymore. Whatever it is, fine. When you land, and you guys that moved away, you probably clicked me off. Don't click me off right now. Wherever you landed, this is God's will for your life. Preach the word. It's not just a pastor. You look at that and you, I know some would go, I'm not a preacher. These weren't preachers. These were moms, dads, kids. It's not, not only that, don't, for, don't miss in the end of verse one, these aren't even the apostles because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They saw their calling. They needed to be there so that they might continue to minister to the fledgling church and new believers in Jerusalem that would stay behind. But for those that were scattered, they're just people like you and me. There's a responsibility for us to be faithful with the word of God which is one more reason why you should read your Bible and pray every day. What do you have to give except that what you've taken in, in every sphere of society? Don't look down on where God has you, where you're working, where you're living. God has you there on purpose so that he might use you in other people's lives, even if where you are comes because of pressure or persecution. It's so amazing to me because a couple of things with Saul here, and we'll develop this much more when we get to Acts 9, but there's a couple of things, three things in particular. Number one, Saul reminds us, Saul reminds us that the grace and the love of God is sufficient to break through all the barriers of hate and anger that so many use to hide and protect their hearts from the truth. So many of the people that are angry and, and hate, hateful, are just in a position of protection, not wanting God to be anywhere near the softness of their heart. And you got to keep praying for them because who would have thought if we didn't have chapter nine, what we would think the end for Saul would be. I don't know how many of us would predict, oh, the dude's going to get saved and radically change the church forever. I don't know that any of us would have come to that conclusion. We'd probably start praying, take him out, Lord, take him out, get rid of him. He's hurting us. He just dragged my mom and threw her into prison. And that would be a natural response. But God had a plan for Saul. 
And God has a plan for the people you're praying for right now too. The people that are hard-hearted coming against you. The, the, those that are in rebellion against God. And we must guard our hearts. It's like I like to tell people in the ministry here, I like to remind us that we need to cultivate a soft heart while we have a thick skin. We need to keep a thick skin and a soft heart. And usually the opposite happens. We have a hard heart and then we have a soft skin. So everything bothers us and only hardens our heart. But it's God's heart for us. It's God's desire for us to cultivate and keep a soft heart toward the lost, toward the marginalized, toward the outcast, toward those that are spewing out anger and hatred. Because who knows? Who knows the next person that's born again and God radically uses the change. Secondly, I want you to notice how God uses Saul to move the church. In, in, in number one, or at least the first way that God moves, moves the church is that God forces the church out of a place of complacency using Saul. He isn't gonna allow the church to stay in Jerusalem. It was his will to go to Judea and Samaria. So he uses Saul, this madman in this season of his life, to move them and force them to move. And I'm reminded that difficulties always move us. Difficulties always move us. You want to be careful which way you're moved because God is always going to move you toward him, not away from him. And then the next way I see how God used Saul is he forced the church to leave their homes, leave what little possessions they have, and become absolutely dependent upon him again. I don't know if you've noticed in your life, I certainly have in mine, the more comfortable and easy my life is, the less I'm inclined to depend on God. It's in trouble that we cry out to him. It's in difficulty that we're broken and we're humbled. But when things are going well, we don't have a tendency to press into the deeper things of God. So God uses this time to press them and to move them. And then... As they go out preaching, verse 5, we meet Philip. We'll study him next time. He goes down to the city of Samaria specifically, and notice what he does. He preaches Christ. He doesn't complain about what's going on in Jerusalem. It, you know, none of them, they don't, they're not going around, I can't believe what's happening. Look what they did to us. There's no complaining, no murmuring, just ministry. And man, that would be good for us to learn. Just serving the Lord, abiding in Christ, trusting him, not becoming like one author. I came across one author reading not too long ago where he described a whole category of unbelieving believers where, yes, we have a relationship with God, but we practically in our lives live like we're unbelievers, like we don't trust God at what he said. This is what he said. It's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it's like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I trust you even in those times where it's difficult and when it's hard. I don't know exactly. I'm not sure what God is going to do to stir you up. I don't know what it's going to take to stir you up. I don't know what it's going to take for you to fulfill the will of God for your life. For you to go from glory to glory, I don't know. I don't personally know. I'm not sure what it's going to take for you to step away from your comfort and ease, to keep you from settling down in some area of comfort. 
I'm not sure what it's going to take for you to step up and take a step of faith or be counted for Jesus, but I do know this. Of all the things I don't know, I do know this. God will do whatever it takes to stir you up in these last days to serve him until he returns. And so be open, church. Don't wait for some catastrophe to stir you up. Choose today. Count the cost and follow Christ. Amen? So Father, thank you again for the word as we learn about the early church being stirred up. There's so much more that you have for us. Forgive us, God, for settling for lesser things. I think that's a big deal when it comes to comfort and ease. Lesser things. Diluting the gospel. Leaning on the arm of the flesh. In the work you want to accomplish in the spirit. Neglecting God to turn to you. And leaning on our own thoughts and ideas and our own systems and whatever it is. I just pray you would Settle our hearts today because I know that some right now are in the process of being stirred up and it doesn't feel good. The circumstances aren't good. And I pray you'd give the needed strength, the needed uh, stability, and even bring back some in your church today to a steadfastness of following you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.